Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray together. And Father, now as we have heard your word being publicly read, and as we have laid our burdens at your feet, Lord, we ask that you would sustain us now for the next few moments, that we could be fully attentive, fully present. Father, this is a very busy time of year, and it's very easy for our hearts and our minds to wander away into what's next, what needs to be done, what's not being done, to be distracted with the busyness of life to where we can easily miss what is most important and replace it with simply things that just feel urgent. Father, would you have mercy on us and sharpen our focus now, that you would speak to us in such a way that it would be unmistakably clear to us that you are speaking for our good and for your glory. Thank you that you are a God who is faithful Thank you that you are a God that is not silent and that you are with us. You are Emmanuel. We give you glory and honor for what you are about to speak to us. And we ask, in light of that, that you would bless this message in spite of the messenger. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So when I was in elementary school, first grade, uh, I had a teacher, Mrs. Goldstein, who would always do this very weird thing, right before she dismissed us for recess, she would always gather us up after we were all bundled, ready to go, and she would always say this to us, remember my dears, birds of a feather flock together, and then she would compel us to say it with her the second time, all together, birds of a feather flock together, and I would hear that over and over every, every time we get ready to go out to recess, and every single time, I had no idea what she was talking about. I would just mindlessly say, birds of a feather flock together, just so I can get out of there and play with my friends, right? It wasn't until years later that I finally understood what she meant and why she said it. Have you guys ever heard that phrase before? Birds of a feather, feather, feather flock together. Turns out what that phrase essentially says is, whenever there are people who are just like you, who think like you, who behave like you, who, who look at the world the same way as you do, those are the people that you will tend to always associate with. Those are the people that you will always congregate around. Those are the people that you will always keep company with. Birds of a feather flock together. In his book, It's About Time, a bishop by the name of Donald L. Smith explains and explicates this interesting statement by saying this in his book, quote, It is better to be alone than in the wrong company. Tell me who your best friends are, and I will tell you who you are. If you run with wolves, you will learn how to howl, but if you associate with eagles, you will learn how to soar to great heights. A mirror reflects a man's face, but what he is really like is shown by the kinds of friends he chooses. The simple but true fact of life is that you become like those with whom you closely associate for the good and the bad. Birds of a feather flock together. One of the biggest implications that come out of that truth statement is one of the best ways that you can figure out what kind of person a person is is by looking at the kinds of people that they keep company with. Here's the question. What kind of people does God keep company with? 
And in light of that kind of company that he keeps with, what does that tell us about God? We're continuing our Advent sermon series entitled, Why Joy? And the purpose of this series is to look at the various reasons that Scripture gives us as to why we should be joyful with the arrival of Christ this Christmas season. And today we're going to see another wonderful reason why we should be so joyful with the arrival of Jesus Christ. And it all has to do with a woman whom Jesus chose to be in company with as an infant as it was all purposefully and providentially orchestrated by God himself. Now you might be wondering, who is this woman that God incarnate choose to keep company with? It's an old widow woman by the name of Anna. So with that in mind, Three things I'd like to share with you this morning as it pertains to this woman named Anna. First, I want to talk about the stigma of Anna. Second, I want to talk about the presumption of Anna. And finally, I want to end it with the validation of Anna. The stigma of Anna, the presumption of Anna, and finally, the validation of Anna. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the stigma of Anna. Now, we don't actually know much about this woman named Anna. And the reason why we don't know much about her is because these are the only verses in the entire Bible that we have about her. These tiny three verses that are almost hidden in Luke chapter 2 are the only verses that we have about this woman, which means there's not much material to go on when it comes to figuring out who this woman is. And yet, if you carefully study these tiny three verses, you actually can figure out a lot about who this obscure widowed woman named Anna actually was. And the first thing that we discover when we study this text carefully is that Anna, first of all, was a woman of stigma. Anna was a woman of stigma. Now, you might be wondering, what do you mean, Pastor John? What does it mean to have stigma attached to you? Well, dictionary.com gives this very clear definition of what it means to have stigma. It says this, quote, A mark of disgrace or infamy, a stain or reproach as on one's reputation. In other words, in order to be a person of stigma, you basically need to have a bad reputation. You need to have bad baggage attached to you and your name. You need to basically have a poor reputation, and that is exactly who this Anna was. You see, there were things attached to Anna's life that was essentially negative, excessive baggage, things that people could have pointed to and felt justified into saying, you know what, Anna, you're a person of stigma. You're a person of, of judgment. You're a person of someone who we could look down on, someone who we could feel sorry for, someone who we could just put our noses down against. Anna was a woman of stigma. Now, you're probably wondering, Pastor, where do you get that from our text? I, I just read it with uh, the reader. I didn't see any sense of stigma attached to her. Well, there is actually two reasons why I say that Anna was a woman of stigma. Okay? Let me explain. First reason is what it says in verse 36. Look at what it says again. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. You see how it says at the very last statement that she was from the tribe of Asher? That's a very important and very profound descriptive statement about Asher, excuse me, about Anna. And the reason why is because Asher, the tribe of Asher, has a lot of baggage, negative baggage attached to it. Now, to explain, I have to go into a little bit of Bible history, so please try and stay awake. Try not to fall asleep because I really want to uh, explain this to you, okay? Let me begin by this, by saying this. The nation of Israel, back in the day, was divided up into 12 tribes, kind of like how our country is divided up into 50 states. And after King Solomon died, one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had... His deadbeat son, a man by the name of Rehoboam, became the next king. And Rehoboam was such a terrible king, he was such an evil, vicious king, that 10 of the original 12 tribes basically waged civil war against him and another 
tribe that was allied to him, a tribe named Benjamin. So these ten tribes basically succeeded away from the monarchy, and they established their own independent state, which they disrespectfully called Israel. They were basically saying, no, we're the true nation of Israel. We're the ones who are truly the chosen ones of God. Right? And if you read through the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles, you see the history of this nation of Israel made up of these ten tribes. And you would see that these ten tribes progress into becoming worse and worse decade after decade, centuries after centuries, to where they did some really evil, sinful things. Things like murdering one another in cold blood. Things like practicing sinister, perverted sexual practices that they learned from the pagan nations around them. Things like worshiping false gods to where they would offer human sacrifices, namely their own newborn children as a sacrifice to the altar of a false god. I mean, it was really, really bad. In fact, it got so bad that God had enough and he sent the Assyrian Empire to essentially conquer this ten-tribe nation and to basically scatter them abroad into exile, never to be heard of again. This is why biblical scholars sometimes refer to these ten tribes as the lost tribes of Israel. It's as if the earth swallowed them up and everything about them, their culture, their heritage, their identity, the very citizens that made up this nation were almost deleted off the pages of history. And one of the tribes that belonged to one of these lost tribes was the tribe of Asher. But here's the thing. Scripture also tells us in the book of First Chronicles that out of all of these ten tribes, these wicked ten tribes, Asher was considered the most insignificant and the least important. Merrill Unger, who is considered one of the best Old Testament scholars that the United States has ever produced, says this in his very famous Bible dictionary about the tribe of Asher. He says this, quote, In the reign of David, the tribe of Asher had become so insignificant that its name is altogether omitted from the list of the chief rulers. With the exception of Simeon, Asher is the only tribe west of the Jordan that furnished no judge, no hero to the nation of Israel. And then he goes on to say this, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, was of the tribe of Asher. It's clear from a scriptural standpoint that to be part of the tribe of Asher, to come from the tribe of Asher, was no badge of honor whatsoever. And because Anna came from this condemned and insignificant tribe, she had to face the real possibility that people would look at her the way they looked at her ancestors, the way they looked at the tribe of Asher. Basically, someone who is insignificant, someone who is condemned, someone who is thrown out of the gutter by God, someone whom God doesn't care about, someone whom God does not want to associate with. And as a result, Anna could easily be perceived simply by coming from this tribe as being someone of no profound reputation, no one of high significance or honor. And here's the thing. That is not all. Because as we go on to read the text, we see another big reason that people could have used to why they would assume that Anna was an insignificant person. We read it in the middle of verse 36 and the beginning of verse 37. Let's read it. And then as a widow, until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Now, our translation is a little bit misleading because it almost sounds like it's saying that Anna, by the time that Luke was writing about her, was 84 years old. But all the biblical scholars say that that's actually not what it's really saying. That's not what Luke is really trying to say. What Luke is really trying to say is that for seven years, Anna was married to her husband, and then he died. And then for the next 84 years of her life, she remained a widow, which means she was husbandless. She had no spouse. 
and she had no children whatsoever. That's what that text is saying. Okay? Now, when you hear that, as New Yorkers, we think, okay, it's a little bit sad, but what's the big deal about it? Yeah, she's a widow, you know, lost her husband, never had any children. But you see, in the ancient world, to be husbandless and to have no children was a big deal because in the mindset of the ancient culture back then, one of the things that people felt that validated that God loved you, that God was for you, that God blessed you, is by giving you a spouse, by giving you children, lots and lots of children. I mean, even in our own culture today, which is so sexually progressive with the sexual revolution in the backdrop of our culture, we still kind of feel bad. We still kind of feel sorry for those people who try to get married but never get married or loses marriage. And they never have the family that they always wish they could have. How much more so in an ancient culture that was so centered on the family, right? And so you have a situation where Anna is in a personal situation where people could have easily said, look at this woman. First of all, she comes from a tribe that is condemned, that is insignificant, and look at her present life right now. She had a husband, but God took, her, took him away from her. And not only that, she has no kids. Here you have two very big, reasonable reasons why people around her could have easily assessed and come to the conclusion that said, you know what, Anna? I don't think God loves you. I don't think God really cares about you. I don't think God really wants to be in your company, Anna. Now, if you had to take a guess on who would have believed this conclusion the most, reasonably you could say, It would have been Anna. Anna could have looked at the circumstances of her life. She could have thought, you know what? Look at the history that I was born into. I was born into the tribe of Asher. Look at my present life now. I had a husband, but before he could give me kids, he died. And I have no one. And I'm basically living here, wandering, wasting away as a poor widow with nothing to look forward to in terms of a legacy that I can leave behind. Surely, if there was anyone who would have thought, God doesn't care about me, God doesn't want to be with me, God has forgotten me, God has cursed me, it would have been Anna. But here's what's so interesting. If you keep reading the description of Anna in this text, you don't see a woman who victimizes herself or feels sorry for herself because you don't see a woman who feels like she has been betrayed or left behind or abandoned by God. Instead, we see a woman who is very devoted, very on fire, very passionate about God. And the question is, how can you explain that? Well, to explain, let me go to my next point, the presumption of Anna. After reading about Anna's cultural and personal biography, we read this about her in the next verse. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. Now, from this verse, we see Anna was a very, very devout woman. She essentially lived in the sanctuary of God, where from dusk to dawn, she was constantly worshiping God. Now, if we're honest, many of us here in this room could barely survive an hour and a half of worship, right? I mean, let's be honest. Some of us can't even handle 30 minutes of worship. And yet here is this woman worshiping God 24-7. And not only that, the kind of worship she's offering is what I would call hardcore worship. What is she doing? She's praying constantly. And not only is she praying constantly, what else is she doing? She's fasting. She's fasting. I mean, this is not the type of worship service where you have external things to inspire and motivate you like, you know, wonderful sounding praise team or a big large crowd where you can feed off of their energy. No, Anna is worshiping in the sanctuary in a dark cornered place 
in pain, in hunger. She is worshiping with intensity. And this kind of behavior is very inconsistent to someone who would think that God hates them, that God has abandoned them, or that God doesn't care for them. In fact, if you want to see an example of what it looks like when a person is genuinely convinced that God has rejected them and that God doesn't want to be with them, look at the character of Salieri in the movie Amadeus. Anyone here see that movie, Amadeus with Salieri? Of course, Nina did. She's a musical prodigy here. Anyone else, right? Those of you who haven't seen it, please go see it. It won Best Picture back in 1984. It it was a really good movie. But let me just give you a brief um, synopsis of what it's about. In the movie Amadeus, there is a character. He's actually the main character, a court composer in Vienna by the name of Salieri. And Salieri loved music. And in fact, he felt called by God himself to be a great composer. The man loved music. In fact, he would always write uh, a composition, and afterwards he would say, grazie, Signor," looking at the cross, giving thanks to God right, because of this wonderful piece of music that he felt inspired to do. This man was basically a devoted religious follower of Jesus. But then things changed when he met Mozart. Mozart, who was 20 years younger than him, Mozart, who was not a Christian, not a believer, he was a smutty, lustful, pagan boy, didn't believe in Christ, and yet his music far surpassed Salieri. I mean, he, 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 you, there's this powerful scene in the movie as Salieri is reading the music of Mozart. You could see it on his face. The actor who did this was so amazing. He, he would see the music. He would play the music in his mind, and you could see his, his hardened face being moved to tears. But yet juxtaposed on top of that is also seething anger that's growing and growing because he knows that he's not capable of it. At that turning point in the movie, Salieri was convinced that God favored Mozart over him. He felt rejected by God. He felt like God no longer was in company with him. He was in company with this pagan little boy named Mozart. And once he was convinced that God did not care for him, that God has rejected him, this is the prayer he offers up. To God. He says this, from now on, we are enemies, you and I, because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and give me for reward only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you. I swear it. That is what a person does. When they feel rejected by God. That is how a person prays if they pray at all. When they go before the Lord. When they feel so rejected. And and, and as if God has just tossed them away. Out in the gutter. That does not fit the profile of Anna at all. Okay, People who do not believe that God loves them. Cannot do what Anna does in our passage. Their very belief will prevent that from happening. And the fact that Anna does worship the way she does. Tells us something very interesting about Anna. What does it tell us? It tells us that Anna is a very presumptuous woman. Anna has a lot of presumption. And what I mean by that is that she presumes something about God that the evidence of her life would say she has no justification to presume. What does she presume about God? She presumes that God loves her, that God wants to be with her, that God values her company. Even though she comes from a tribe that is condemned and lost, even though her circumstances testify that God does not favor her, that God does not want to bless her, nevertheless, she holds the stubborn faith that says, God, you love me. Anna 
of Asher, the widow. Here's the question. On what basis does she have such gall? On what basis can she have this kind of presumption about the God she worships? Well, the answer leads me to my final point, the validation of Anna. From our text, it tells us something else about Anna that ends up being the foundation to why she can be so presumptuous. Listen to what it says about her in verse 36. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. Luke tells us that Anna was not only a widow, she was not only a woman from the tribe of Asher, she was also what? A prophet. In the Bible, there were two qualifications that you needed in order to be a prophet. First of all, you needed to be genuinely called by God to where you felt this internal call. And in addition to that, the community of God's people had to validate that call by witnessing your prophecies actually coming true. Scripture makes it very clear. Hey, if you have someone in your church or someone in your synagogue saying that they're a prophet... One easy test. If what they say doesn't happen, they're not a prophet. Don't believe them. Okay? Stone them. No. <laughs> it actually does say stone them, but don't believe them. If what they say actually comes true, follow them. For they are speaking on my behalf. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 21. You may say to yourself, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true... That is the message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. By the time Luke penned these words about Anna, she was already recognized by her community as a prophetess. In other words, she must have prophesied already that she was speaking on behalf of God because the community already recognized her as a prophet. Clearly, that is the starting point of her validation to what she says about her God and her relationship to God. But Luke goes a little bit further. He gives us another powerful validation to Anna's presumptive faith, right? Starting in verse 38, it says this. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. (laughs) Coming up to them, who is them? Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus. Prior to this incident, Simeon, held the baby Jesus, gave thanks to God as Joseph and Mary were presenting him to the temple as the law required. And then as soon as that interaction with Simeon ended, Anna comes into the picture and she sees the baby Jesus. And here we see where the point of origin for her presumptive faith came. Anna says, I prophesy that this child is the redemption of Jerusalem. In other words, she's saying, all of the basis of my presumption will be based on this prophecy that I'm making over this child right now. This child will be the redemption of Jerusalem. What does that mean? What is the redemption of Jerusalem? Let me explain. In the Bible, Jerusalem is the city where God promises his people where he's going to dwell and be with them, where he'll bring peace and prosperity. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more separation. But here's the problem. By the time Anna is prophesying here, Jerusalem is conquered by Rome. And many people around that time interpreted that as if God was saying, I reject you, my people. I no longer want to be in your company. I no longer favor you. I no longer want to bless you. I curse you. I cast you out. But there was a small group of people, people like Anna, who had this presumptuous and prophetic hope that said, 
Even though God has every right to hate us, even though God has every right to turn against us, even though God has every right to judge us because of our sin and our betrayal, because of our sins, I, Anna the prophet, prophesy that God still loves us, he is still with us, and he will never forsake us. And it all centers on this little baby named Jesus. The basis of Anna's presumptive faith in God is Jesus. That is her faith. That is the basis of her presumption. And for those of us who know the rest of the gospel story, we know that Anna was ultimately validated. Because what happened to this baby boy as he grew? He grew in faith. He grew in stature. And ultimately, he lived the perfect life that none of us lived. And he ultimately died a sacrificial death that none of us will ever have to die if we put our faith in him. In other words, Anna prophesied that the reason why she could have faith that God loved her, wanted to be in her company, was because of what Jesus would do for her, for you, for me, for all of us who look to him as our Lord and Savior. That is the gospel. This is the reason why she could be so confident that God loved her. Not because of who she was, not because of her history, not because of her background, not even because of what happened to her or what she did to herself but because of who Jesus is and what he did for her and for those who put their faith in him. That's the kind of God that Anna believed Jesus to be. He is the kind of God who chooses to suffer loneliness, humiliation, betrayal, shame, ultimately death. Why? So he could ultimately be in company with broken, tattered losers like you and me. See, if there's anything that we need to understand about the message of Christmas, it's this. Even though there are things in our lives, either things that we have done or things that have happened to us, that may seem like God says, I don't care about you, I don't want you, you're not in my favor. The message of Christmas tells us, follow the example of Anna and be presumptuous. Be presumptuous of the love of God. Because it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what you've done or what has been done to you. God loves you. He accepts you. And he desires your company. Even if there are things in your life that says he shouldn't be with us. He is so with us. The message of Christmas allows us to have the gall, to have the audacity to be presumptuous. To where no matter what circumstances that has happened to us, no matter what trial, no matter what tragedy, we can still, with a stubbornness of hope, say, like Anna, God wants me. God loves me. And he favors my company. That is the message of Christmas. My question to you this morning is, do you have that presumption? Are you as bold? Do you have the gall, the audacity? To be that presumptuous like Anna. The message of Christmas is Jesus gives you permission to be that way. Whether you come from the tribe of Asher, whether you have suffered widowhood, whether you have struggled with sin, whether you have suffered tragedy, you can be presumptuous and therefore you can have joy. You have that presumptive joy. Let's pray. 
Father, as we think more about what this season is all about, and as we look at our lives, as we always do, and as we take inventory of all that is wrong with us, all that has been done to us that where we feel we have been wronged, Lord, it's very easy to have the mindset of Salieri, to think that you have rejected us, to think that you don't care, to think that you have abandoned us and want nothing to do with us. Father, whenever we feel that way, whether during the Christmas season or out of it, that we would look to the example of Anna. And that like her, we would follow her and believe her prophecy that because of Jesus, we can be presumptuous of your amazing, wonderful love. And that you are the kind of God who keeps company, not with those who have their life together, not with those who are perfect, not with those who are righteous, not with those who are competent, but with those who are just like Anna, people who are just like us. And so, God, would you give us that faith as we seek to celebrate this Advent season. And may the joy that we get as we meditate on that beautiful truth carry over to the next year and every year to follow until the day comes where, like Anna, we can see you, Jesus, face to face and we can give thanks in a manner that is so glorious and so pleasing to you. Oh, Father, would you please give us that presumptive faith and hope for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not going to give the Lord his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give. But to our members, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.